0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. You may not have all the answer
1: and that's okay. I think it's absolutely fine to tell your kid that is such an amazing question that I'm not sure if I have the right answer, but let's go find it together. But I will tell you, if you put it off too long, they're going to search for the answer because they really want to know the answer. Don't necessarily get angry about what they have on their plate, but see what you can add to their plate. Don't lose it because they're eating fast food and cookies all the time, but get excited when they're adding something that's healthy. We have to be careful as parents that we don't shame one another because we're all on this earth doing the very best we can. And a lot of parents parent the way they do because of the way they were taught for their parents.
0: Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Elevate podcast. I'm so grateful to have you all join me today as our guest, Dr. Trish Hutchinson, MD, is a paediatrician, nationally recognized health educator, and an author in the United States. Dr. Trish is the co-founder and the chief medical officer of Girlology, a leading wellness app that supports girls and caregivers with personalized on-demand health resources that guide them through puberty and adolescence with confidence. Dr. Trish has authored books for youth on puberty and sexual development. Her most recent publication is a puberty book for every body published by the American Academy of Pediatrics, where she is also a national spokesperson. Dr. Trish also is the co-founder of the Period Education Project a national nonprofit that trains medical students to deliver menstrual health education to under-resourced communities. With over 30 years of clinical practice and currently working in college health at the College of Charleston, which she is devoted to because it keeps her Up to date on all the issues that our kids face daily, including her own two college age daughters. Well, this could not be more apt for the Elevate mission or the Elevate hopes in terms of educating and helping and supporting parents and educators with all the tricks and worries that come with raising tweens. So, without further ado, I'd love to introduce Dr. Trish to all of you. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for including me. Um, I always like talking with you. We always have so much fun. We really do. It's great that we were able to connect and talk about the areas in which you come from. One of the things that you've done to help lots of us parents. So you've written a book called Uology, and it's written for everybody.
1: Absolutely. So my main gig in life is I have a company called Girlology and it's a digital health platform and we for young girls and we named it Girlology. We have gyology way before we had better language about inclusivity. And so we were we had a boys book puberty and a girls book puberty and we were about to update and put all this together. And the American Academy of Pediatrics actually approached myself and my co-partner in Girlology Dr. Melissa Holmes, she's an OBGYN and asked us if we would partner with one other person who has great all-inclusive um, gender language and write a puberty book for everybody. So we were so excited about this book because it actually has all the information for puberty for every kid out there. So everyone feels feels they see themselves somehow in the book. It was a COVID project, but it was a, a lot of fun. And I'm so glad that we were able to do that.
0: Yeah, there must be so few and far between of those types of books, I'm sure. There was a real
1: gap. Yes, because everybody still separates kids when they learn about puberty in the cafeteria, boys in one room, girls in the other. But the information should be the same for all kids because all kids are naturally curious about themselves and others. And, you know, they actually love learning about how the body works and grows. So, all kids deserve to understand the physical, social, and emotional changes of puberty in a kid-friendly language. We have a lot of fun little jokes in there. Uh, but they all should learn about hygiene and hair. They should learn about breast buds and bras, periods and erections. Um, and this actually helps them understand and support each other. So in turn, they will have better respect and empathy for everybody. And another interesting point that we found out, if, if kids learn about this information together, it really helps them in future relationships but making conversations about their bodies more comfortable, you know, these conversations really encourage uh, healthy communication about personal boundaries, um, which set the stage for successful relationships in the years ahead.
0: I love hearing all of this. It's wonderful to get your perspective, because I did not even that long ago in the schools I was working at as head of science, had to separate the girls and obviously the boys. I'm pleased to hear it. Is that happening in a much more inclusive way then or in your area? No, it's not. It's still, we, you know, with our, with Girlology, we have
1: still have our puberty books where we have Uology, but our co-ed or our, our science of reproduction class is co-ed. And so we invite everybody in the room in fifth grade to kind of learn the plumbing of, of the word sex. And in that, we review all the pubertal changes. And so uh, we got some pushback initially, but the parents actually appreciate it because it helps them have conversations about the opposite sex within the home. The other question about the book I had was, A, where is it available? How can parents get it? You can get it on Amazon and most independent bookstores in the U.S. I'm not sure about over where
0: you live, uh, but I know it's available on Amazon. I'll link that in the show notes for everybody as well. Learning about the body, the functions of the different parts of the body, all of the things that you mentioned that are covered in this book. But I think what we're finding as a general rule of thumb is that kids of much younger ages are hitting puberty sooner than expected or anticipated and some parents get caught off guard because I think they parked certain conversations for later down the road and I wonder if you have any advice on when the right time is to start conversations So this I mean is there a right time I love that you said parked the conversations I've never
1: heard of that phrase I'm like I'm going to use that We're <laughs> the conversation I love that
0: yeah just parked yes. over there
1: And so it's so important for kids to get this information before they go through these changes, because what happens is if they understand the changes, they face them with so much more confidence and less anxiety. But you're right. Parents sometimes go, oh, she hasn't started puberty. She's a late bloomer. I don't need to have this conversation. But if they're in a classroom where other people or other kids are starting to go through puberty, they want to learn about it themselves as well. So don't use an excuse that your kid's a late bloomer or hasn't had anything happen. But kids are really starting puberty girls around the age ages of eight and 12, and boys are nine to 14. And so a lot of people say, oh my gosh, that's second, third grade. Yes, you've got to have these conversations and and these conversations around pubertal development are not just one and done because puberty takes about five years to go through it. So you don't want to necessarily jump into menstruation or period with an eight year old, but you want maybe want to start talking about breast buds, which is how the majority of girls start their period or hair, pubic hair and things like that. So uh, started early. So they go. I know what's happening. I will tell a story. I did have a girl in my office years ago that actually I would always check for pubertal development, breast buds and things like that. And I, she had a breast bud on one side and not the other, which is completely normal. The other one catches up in about six months. I will say they're like a little blueberry. They can be a little tender. So let your kids know. But anyway, I found it and I'm like, I was so excited. I was like, you've started puberty. She just started crying and I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? I'm the worst doctor ever. And so what happened is her aunt had just been diagnosed with breast cancer and nobody had told her about a lump in her breast is completely normal to start puberty. So she just heard about lumps and thought immediately she had breast cancer. So it is really important um, to unpark those conversations started much earlier. So kids are just ready. And what we found in Girlology is kids are actually excited about the changes when they hear about them earlier. If they're in the midst of the changes, they're like rolling their eyes at you, like whatever. But if you're early and in some of our Girlology classes, they'll look down their shirt
0: to see if they have a breast bud. I mean, they're just excited to go through all those changes. What do you say? eight. So are you saying maybe start at least talking about body changes six, seven? Yeah, you sure can. You can just make it very matter of fact and easy. You know,
1: when you're putting your bra on or not putting on your bra or they notice your breast or, you know, in the next couple of years, your body's going to start making changes to look more like an adult body. And one of those changes is you're going to start to develop breast. You know, it's very simple. It doesn't have to be this long. You're going to start getting hair on your minds. And the other thing I do want to say is, please use correct anatomical terms for your kids at a very young age. When they're in the shower going eyes, ears, nose, mouth, they should also be going vulva, vagina, penis, testicles in the same way. Because once kids start using those cutesy names for their private parts, they put a connotation that they're dirty or gross and they're not. They're just like any other part of our body. But it also is a very important part of sexual abuse prevention with our kids because if they understand the proper names, and they understand what's private, then they can start to understand the boundaries that are around those parts that nobody should be touching, showing them theirs, showing them pictures or anything else, but they have a red flag. Oh, you know what? My parents, my mom told me this is a private part. I got to go tell her what just happened. So it is really, really important to start having those conversations early about those body parts.
0: Yeah. Massive. A huge tip. Thank you so much for reinforcing that because I think there is so much Well, family chat, right? When we can be like that when we're little and we can often use nicknames or cutesy names. And I think it's a very common theme, isn't it? Uh
1: A lot of us grew up with the cutesy names, right? So we, a lot of parents don't even know some of the proper names. You know, the outside girl parts is the vulva, not your vagina. You know, there's so many words. And I always tell parents to practice with your partner, practice looking in the mirror, saying it so you feel more comfortable saying it. And if you have the opportunity to start early to talk about this, perfect. But if your kid's 12 and you've never used the proper name before, it's okay. It's never too late to start any conversation about their bodies. And you can simply say, hey, you know what? I really should have used those terms. Let's go back and let's learn the proper terms. And let me talk to you about what's private, what's not. Let's talk about boundaries. So don't ever listen to something and go, oh, it's too late. It's never too late.
0: And I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well, about terms of how we go back to readdress things. (laughs) We might have got what we think is wrong. So is there a danger then that if we don't have these conversations, I suppose I'm just wondering from a kid's perspective who might have Natural curiosity, because in our generation, if we had a question, you might go to a neighbor or a cousin that was older and, and they might give you some silly answer, but you don't know if to believe it or not. But these days, kids have this magical world called the World Wide Web at their fingertips. So I suppose my question is, is there a real danger that Google gets in the way? Uh, it's
1: a scary world on the Internet, and we really should have frank conversation with our kids before we hand them any access to the internet you know and a lot of parents get up caught up and i had to give my kid a phone because all their friends have it but The main reason for a phone when they're young is really to call you in case of an emergency. And the cool thing is once you give them a phone, you don't have to give them all those apps and the internet and everything all at once. It's a learning process. Just like when your kid's starting to drive, you're not going to throw them the keys. You're going to teach them how to start it, how to put on the brakes, how to turn. So all those things they need to learn to navigate on social media as well. And so maybe they want the Instagram app first. You download that, you start looking through it, and and you start looking through posts of friends um, and you teach them a little media literacy about what they're seeing isn't always what's real in life. And you start talking about that. But the other part is, we have to talk about it, is pornography. And that's the scary, scary, scary thing. There was a new study that just came out in January in the U.S. uh, by Common Sense Media, and it actually confirmed that the majority of teens between the ages of 13 and 17 have watched pornography online, and some actually admitted uh, to watching it as young as uh, 10, Uh, and some even younger than that. This is self-report, so not everybody's going to tell you the truth about pornography, and it's hard to actually ask these questions. So, you know, kids are curious. Even if you talk about it, you still need to be careful and warn them that if they look up things on the internet, there may be be pictures and views of other people uh, that aren't really safe for them to be seeing. And if something like that comes up, uh, they really need to come let you know. But the scariest part is that a lot of these kids are searching for it on purpose, but over 50% of kids admit to unintentional or accidental pornography viewing. So that's why everybody's going to talk about it.
0: No, we do. And I think that also it starts to set unrealistic images and expectations in in both girls' and boys' minds of what relationships of any kind should look like or feel like. And I think that's a massive danger as well, because of course our subconscious mind has seen things now and it starts to Think that actually this is okay or this type of activity is what we should be striving for. And it's not the healthiest way, is it? No,
1: kids look at it as a how-to lesson, which is really scary because you know, pornography has a lot of violence, it trivializes rape. Um, there's no consent. Uh, it's just nothing's real either. No real bodies, no real breast penis sizes, and they're all hairless. You know, they're just you, it's just not the normal world. And and so we need to let our kids also know that it's scripted. It's like um, it's like Hulk or Superman. It's not a real story that they're seeing and it can just desensitize our brains. And, and the scary part is some kids can become addicted to looking at it because of that dopamine release uh, when they see it. But if you catch your kid, whatever you do, don't freak out. Take a deep breath. Uh, It doesn't mean your kid's a bad person and let them know that they're not a bad person for looking at it. They're just curious about it. And then just start some conversations about it. But whatever you do, don't scream and yell and
0: shut off the Internet. Tell them they can never go on it anymore. Of course, it's a panic. It's like a knee-jerk reaction, right? You don't know. And so you're right. It is empowering to be prepared in conversations, hopefully like the one we're having today, where parents can come to and realize that we're not alone. We're all kind of treading the waters together. Is there ever a silly, and I'm putting the word silly in in air quotes, and I mean silly because even as a teacher, I always tell my students that there is no such thing as a silly question. But I think around this topic, because some of our kids have far more knowledge than others, have vocab that is far more sophisticated than others, and there are other children on the end, like not maybe late bloomers, but just more innocent or just less interested and maybe don't have knowledge, that sometimes they feel nervous or scared. And I wondered if you had any advice, and I just want to put everyone's mind at ease that th- anything goes and all questions, if it's a question in your mind, is a valid question. Would you agree? Absolutely.
1: If a kid has a question, it is a valid question, especially when it comes to these topics. And as a parent, jump for joy that they came and asked you that question. You know, be happy that, and be available when they ask you these questions. Try to put your phone down because it is so important because it probably was uh, difficult for them to come ask you. But, you know, I've had Over the years, I've had some really great questions. And uh, when we explain what sex is, sometimes even to my own kids, I have two kids. They'll be like, oh, you did that twice? No, a few more times than twice. And then how does the penis get in there? What if I don't want to do that? Or around period, it's like, Does the blood just gush out? Does the body swim around with the food, the spaghetti you ate last night? Because everybody says the baby grows in your stomach and that's what they hear. You know, and then there's more specific questions when you know they've talked to other people. I had a fifth grader raise their hand and ask what a dildo is. I mean, So they're hearing this terminology and they're curious about some of these questions. But, you know, when they ask you these questions, you really want to laugh, but it's just almost the same as don't freak out and yell. Don't bust out laughing. You can say, you know, mom finds that a little funny, but I'm happy to answer it. You know, be
0: be honest with them, but just watch your reaction. That's one of the reasons I wanted to ask, because it can be amusing to think, to hear what your children. I mean, I remember being in a classroom where a little girl put up her hand again, very shocked that you can still have sex when you're pregnant and she just assumed, like assumed that, that that person, the man was going to kill the baby that was in the tummy and just was mortified. Like, how can you possibly have sex if you're pregnant? You can't. And I just, you know, it really had to break this down for her. I, and I, I think if you are a parent, it is, there is a natural tendency to say, where did you hear that word from? Or how did you find out? It? it better just to say, wonderful question. Thank you for asking. Let's see how we can answer this. And if you don't have an answer, what would you say to parents that are actually not sure what to say to their kids? You may not have all the answer, and that's okay. I think it's
1: absolutely fine to tell your kid, that is such an amazing question that I'm not sure if I have the right answer, but let's go find it together. And that's also a good time to show them safe places on the internet uh, to search for medical questions or next time we go see your doctor. But I will tell you, if you put it off too long, they're going to search for the answer because they really want to know the answer. So uh, I think it's a great uh, to go on a little hunt and try to find the answer to some of these
0: questions. And don't feel bad if you don't have the answer, please. Okay, fantastic. So all this growing up comes with much change, as we both appreciate and mentioned. There's a physical side, the emotional side, and obviously the social side. But if we just focus a little bit more on physical health, one of the things that we hear a lot about, and I know you did a recent article on skin and teenage Girls with hygiene and skincare. I think a lot of parents struggle with giving the right advice to their girls, but not just girls. I'm sure it's for all teens and tweens. Do you have some tips on best way? I mean. First of all, don't point it out. If <laughs> you know, maybe
1: I was in the back of the station wagon when my sister pointed out to all who all was in the car that I smelled bad. And it was like, oh, yeah. So never point it out. If you notice your kid is starting to have foot odor, acne, underarm, anything, it's something that should be a private conversation with empathy. And so when it comes to body odor, so many kids immediately think they just need to go out and buy deodorant. And that's not true hygiene requires soap and water. Now, I have to say soap because a lot of kids just think they can get in the shower and sing and it just washes off. But as you know, when you get oil on your hand, when you cook, you got to have soap to remove it. And when kids start going through puberty, they secrete an oily substance called sebum in their hair follicles. And if you don't use soap, it doesn't remove. And so if this oil is on the skin, you also have natural bacteria on your skin. So when the oil and the bacteria have a party, they make body odor. So that's what happened. So we got to use soap to kill the bacteria and also get those oils off our skin. Then if you want to use a deodorant, then I think it's it's absolutely fine. Where We have the choice of natural deodorants, and some work great, but I tell you, when kids are going through puberty, they sweat a lot, and sometimes the naturals don't work great. They can help with the smell, but the thing that natural deodorants don't always do is they don't stop all the sweating, as I mentioned, and that's when you need an antiperspirant, and the antiperspirants are some semblance of aluminum chloride, and there was a huge debate over, Aluminum chloride with breast cancer and Alzheimer's and all these diseases, but there's been no medical research or evidence-based research to back that up. So it doesn't keep your toxins in. You release toxins way more in your urine and sweat through other parts of your body. So if your kid is really embarrassed about the pit stains and the amount of wetness, please
0: consider aluminum chloride uh, for them. And then obviously part of growing up is playing sport and doing all these great things that we want our children to do, but it comes with, hygiene, <laughs> <Iggy. laughs> Yeah. Carrying on with a little bit of the physical side of it. And obviously I think it feeds into other things about the brain, which is one area that I'm really interested in, but is food and nutrition. I get a lot of questions from a lot of my parents about the worry you have ensuring that your children are getting the right foods into their bodies, their bodies are growing. And I just wonder as a medical professional if you have any guidelines for kids that struggle to eat anything, but fast food and tuck shop food for many uh, for lunch and for dinner and, they skip breakfast because they're sleeping in. They can't get up in time. They've had late exams, studying, revision, lots of things going on. And I, I really do have a lot of empathy if I look at their schedules. They're pretty busy kids. Somehow food is the thing that they let go of the quickest, I feel. It could be wrong here. So tell me, A, should we be overly concerned as parents if our children are skipping meals or are fueling themselves with takeaways and snacks that aren't always high in nutritional value? You know, I think I really messed up in this with my kids
1: because I know the research and it's so important of of proper nutrition for their physical and emotional self. I mean, there's a lot of research about food that treats anxiety and depression, right? Dr. Drew Ramsey is a neuropsychiatrist over here in the U.S. And I love and follow him and all his information, but... I think I overdid it by getting very angry when my kids were eating fast foods. And I learned from another person in the nutrition world that said, don't necessarily get angry about what they have on their plate, but see what you can add to their plate. So don't lose it because they're eating fast food and cookies all the time, but get excited when they're adding something that's healthy. And and I totally screwed up on that one. I'd be like, why are you eating fast food again? Well, number one, it tastes good. They learned that it tastes good. It tastes than raw broccoli, I think it's really hard for us as parents because it's all out there. It's in vending machines. It's everywhere. So. What recommend is, as I said, try not to freak out over what they're eating and try to just say, hey, would you like to add an orange to that hamburger? Or how about some, you know, just carrot sticks or something, but not be overly emotional about it. And the other is watch what you have in your home, right? You can act like it's a treat if they go out of the house, like maybe they have a soda when you go out to eat or something like that, but just don't have the food in your house. Because if if it's there and they're going to the pantry, they're going to pick the cookies over the blueberries right and I think that's really important and the other thing that we as parents need to do is when you buy something at the grocery store make it ready and available so I've let so many cantaloupes rot on my counter without cutting them up and getting them ready so if you take the time to wash your berries or cut up a cantaloupe or raw broccoli or something so as soon as they open the refrigerator and they see it it's easy and accessible and they pick it up and they don't have to think twice about it we have to do a little extra work when we come home from the grocery store to be able to do that. But the big thing, too, is parents, we have to model behaviors. Are we eating fast food all the time? Are we not trying to make sure that we eat a wide, wide variety of foods? And so I think that's really important, too. But the most of the parents that are wigged out about it are the ones that do
0: eat very well. It's, it's tough. It really is. I hear you on that balance thing. It's important to let them be as well. I think if we're on them about everything, I've we become these terrible nags that are moaning about too many things. And I completely get a lot to start nagging about with teens, right? Yeah. And your grocery bills, are they go through the roof because they do eat a lot, but because they're growing. So it's a tough one to get right. But I do think that food thing also, then, and the timings of when they eat it, how they eat it, because a late night snacking, and the number of, if I had a pound or a dollar for every time my mother said to me, I've just cleaned up after dinner, my kitchen is sparkling, it's beautiful, I'm just about to sit down with my cup of tea or glass of wine, and they just come swimming. Ready for the next meal. Yeah. So I get that. And that ties in beautifully with my next question, which is, around sleep we as parents that are probably approaching some part of middle ages start to get want to wind down and (laughs) sleep and rest and have quiet time but teens are sort of rewiring themselves their brains are up again and i think there is some medical research to support this i've spoken about it on some of my blogs but i thought it'd be really nice to have your expertise on this explain what's happening to adolescent brains and why sleep becomes so difficult for them Yeah,
1: sleep is an amazing, it's as important as nutrition for our mental and physical well-being, right? And with the pandemic finally going, I think sleep became a huge issue because kids weren't getting up and going to school. So their sleep weight cycle completely got messed up. But I think we're all back into the groove again. But we're all trying to teach our kids sleep hygiene. And There's this hormone called melatonin, um, and it is what the brain starts to secrete when it gets dark outside, and it helps to signal that it is about time to go to bed, right? And so what happens in the teen years is the melatonin is secreted later, which isn't Air, but that's what happens, um, and so that's why kids aren't really sleepy until later at night. We're ready to go to bed at nine or ten, and they're up to eleven or twelve. Um, and it also is peer social time. They're on their phones. This is when their kids are usually finish up their homework. Um, but it is an issue because if kids could get eight hours of sleep, it makes such a difference for their bodies. Now, some people ask about this melatonin if you can actually buy it over the counter to replace or make that melatonin start earlier you know, melatonin that you buy over the counter is synthetic, but it's pretty much chemically similar to what we secrete into our bodies. And there's not a lot of research on it. So when I have parents ask me about melatonin, I'm like, if you're going on a trip or, you know, anything that's going on that they might need some extra sleep, just don't use it on the long-term situation. And it's really important to start with one milligram. They sell like five and 10 and 20 milligrams over the counter. Start with one on the first night. If it doesn't work 30 minutes later, you can give maybe Three to five milligrams more. But there's a lot of research in kids that show that over five milligrams does nothing to do to help with their sleep and it increases the amount of side effects like headaches, Domer pain, feeling drowsy the next day as well. But just know that there's not a lot of research to show that it's safe or unsafe over the long term. So we just have to be careful with that.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful because it is overwhelming when you get to the Dwayne Reeds in America. They're, they're not over the counter here yet, but in America, they definitely are. And a lot of friends, family members ask when I go to Vancouver to pick them up and it gets overwhelming because you're not quite sure what you should be giving your children so that is really helpful for our listeners I think for lots of us and obviously with jet lag and traveling when people go away I get I get that but so then there's definitely a big study done I think it was in the states around changing school time start times for teenagers. Do you want to talk about that and do we know where we are with that? You
1: know there are Some states and counties that have actually done it and in mine, they have. So the school for high schools actually starts at 830 instead of even 30 minutes makes a huge difference to kids. And so if you can talk to your school boards or anybody else that could take this age group and just shift it 30 minutes to an hour, it truly makes a big difference in the life of our teenagers. Um, You know, just waking up at 745 instead of seven, because they're going to go to bed at 11 or 12, that can give them that extra 30 minutes. And over the long run, over a week, that really adds up. So it is helpful. Couple other things you can do when your kids are younger is start by not letting them have their phone in their room. I get it. It's a social time once they go to bed, but there is a little research about the blue lights emitted from our screens that may cause, but there's no conclusive that says it definitely keeps them up. But I'm sorry, staring at a light instead of in the dark has got to blue light or not light. Any light whatsoever is going to tell their brain to stay awake. So if you can, it's really important um, to teach your kids to completely put down their devices. 30 minutes before they go to bed, it should be an hour, but I know they'll fight with you a little bit, but really push for that 30 minutes before they go to bed, have them sit in their dark room, um, that kind of thing. Have you noticed your kids like naps? Yeah. That's a tough one because they come home from school and they want to go up and crawl up to bed for an hour or two and do not let them do that. It completely messes up their circadian rhythm. I think short naps or power naps, like uh, 15 at tops, 30 minutes, but be really careful. Um, the sooner they get home from school instead of the later towards the bedtime is beneficial. But yeah, don't let them sleep for hours in
0: the afternoon. I let them chill in their beds, but I don't let them sleep. But- they just like horizontal when they get back, so it's, it's fine. It's quite. We all need a bit of downtime, I suppose, after a busy day. Some things you buy into as a parent because you hear about it and you're purchasing the next thing. So I do know parents that are asking about those. Screen filters or the things that you can get put on your phones and laptops and iPads. You know, I talked to an
1: ophthalmologist about this and a couple other people, and you know, it's just the blue wavelengths uh, which are really helpful during the day, right? They boost attention, reaction time, and mood, but they are disruptive at night, just like I think all lights are a disruption of night. Um, but there's not a lot of con- inconclusive evidence to say blue light. I just think all light just try to keep away. Now, I have some people that love those glasses and swear by them during the day and night they wear. Them. If they work for you, perfect. Um, but I wouldn't go out and just spend a ton of money on them. Uh, but if you want to try it, you, they're pretty inexpensive to try. So I, I think it's a reasonable thing. But I wish I could tell you definitely the research shows definitely it
0: works. Um, but there's just not enough evidence out there. But if it works for your kid, do it. I think it's like anything. And sometimes it can be just psychosomatic, right? I've got these lovely lenses on. My kid loves because they're stylish. So she thinks
1: she's aware when she's looking in her computer because they're cute glasses. So,
0: okay, whatever. Accessorize. It works. Um, And then for those children and and obviously families who work with kids or are raising kids with any kind of diagnosis, Which is any kind of neurodiversity. I wondered if puberty hits these children differently, and obviously, for each condition, that might look differently. But I wondered if you might have some general support or advice if puberty becomes a totally different experience. And some, I know, some families who have one child that is not neurodiverse and their experience with that child during puberty was completely different to the one that has a condition. And I'm not sure it could just be that they're two different kids, which is probably true too, but. I wondered if you might be able to speak to Definitely as an educational professional in schools, that question seems to come up a lot. And I wondered if you might have any advice for those parents listening or teachers. Yeah. And there are a few books out there that are directed towards neurodiverse kids, especially
1: autistic kids, um, when they're going through these changes. And the main thing is you still have to have the conversation. And I always tell parents, you know your kids, right? You know, if they have sensory that you have to be careful with pads or may have to get a certain kind of period underwear. And so I think as long as we understand our kids and where they are in their level but we still have to give him facts and information and talk to him about the changes that are ahead. And I definitely agree there are some challenges uh, there. And always check in with your healthcare provider. Um, I know there are a couple of uh, organizations here that I can send you that has some information as well, but don't not have the conversation because you don't know how to. Uh, Just have confidence in yourself and that you know your kid and you know the best way to deliver the information.
0: And what about this irrational times or those kind of <laughs> moments in a, in a, in a child, in a teen's life that you can't quite make sense of them. They, they don't want to talk to you, that whole idea around hormones raging. Um, is it true that, or not true? I suppose. It, is it more likely that if your child has a neurodiverse condition, struggles to be emotionally regulated at the best of times, that during puberty, that they're going to need a, like a hot, heightened sense of support or empathy patience i don't know are those kind of warning signs for parents that might have younger kids that are let's say diagnosed with adhd and their kids are they struggle with just being regulated even on a day when the hormones aren't raging what do you do when you've got a sudden surge of stuff that hits a young child's body and they don't know how to
1: express themselves either so I want us to be careful when we say hormones rage because hormones don't rage. Oh, sorry, thank you. Mood swings. No, it's 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 everybody says it right. That's so the hormones are what causes these mood swings in puberty. But actually, what happens is. The brain is a major construction zone at puberty. There's so much going on. There are the new hormones that are circulating. There's new circuitry that's being developed. But what happens is the kids have these moods because of what they're experiencing, right? It's not because of the hormones. But what can happen with the brain changes and these new hormones, these moods are intensified. So that's why people sometimes think about these hormones rage, but their hormones aren't raging. It's just their moods are major intensified. So they can be really silly, really angry, really irritable, all these kinds Kind of things, and, and I have an ADHD kid, so I totally understand the impulsive part of it. And uh, sometimes they do lash out and say things and just need to take a step back. So if you're a parent of a kid um, that is noticing some of these mood swings in puberty, I always tell parents to be the parent. Which means sit back, take a deep breath, try to teach them to take a deep breath. But if you're the parent that's why are you acting that way? Why are you crying? Why are you so mad? You know, all these kind of things. The kid's going to be like, Whoa! you know, um, let them know, like maybe she's upset because she can't find her perfect shirt to wear to school one day. We've all had that right or a shoe you know, help them kind of name that emotion that they're feeling. But what's really important for all kids is emotional intelligence and just help them learn coping skills on how, and you, you talk about it in your book beautifully. It's just such an important thing that, you know, we can talk about the physical aspects of puberty all day long, but the emotional aspects, we as parents
0: have a really big job to teach our kids uh, emotional intelligence. That's really well said. And I'm really pleased that you've corrected me on that terminology. So do you think it's social conditioning that I've picked up this phrase from? Yes. Everybody says it. Everybody says it. (laughs) But I love the fact that it is something scientifically, as you explain it, is completely not right because it gets used again when women, (laughs) many women hit menopause. Yes. Yes in your lifetime. You hear it quite a lot.
1: I mean, my husband, I would be in a terrible mood and he would look at me and go, you got to be about to start your period. And then I would kind of get in a rage because I'd be really mad for him saying that. It's the moods and it's what we're facing and it's how we handle it. But we can't blame everything on our hormones. Our brains are amazing parts of our body. And what we feel is what we feel. And sometimes it's intensified and stronger than others.
0: And working through those emotions is what the main solution is really, I think, is what I'm hearing from you. And I couldn't agree more. Like you say, EQ is one of our big superpowers at the Elevate programs. So conflicting messages, information overload, differences in generations, having mum's advice and then a grandma's thing did it differently. I just think sometimes as a parent that wants to do right, and I keep saying right in quotes because I don't know if there is such a thing that as being right, but I just feel like maybe as we should just give ourselves a break because, and we should just start to expect that, think that as parents we might get things "quote unquote" wrong, and maybe we just need to find ways to accept that. And I I say this with some reflection based on, and I didn't have kids that long ago; they're teenagers now. But even from when my children were being weaned to sleep trained, I feel like. <laughs> Everyone is telling us that what we did, it the way we did, it was so awful. It was so wrong for their development. You have no idea why we've changed all of that. And all the books are now saying to, you know, child-led weaning and there shouldn't be this and there shouldn't be. This. And I get that research and, and information develops and things come out. But how are we ever to know if what we're doing is going to somehow be detrimental to our children later on? Oh, my gosh, this is such a great point, because I swear,
1: you know, when you think about how when I think about how I was parented, it's totally different of how I parent my own kids. And and I think about how our grandparents parented and it was with a heavy hand and a, uh, and a hard nose. Right. And and the older generation sometimes can't understand why we just don't tell them they can do it. You know, or and and I think we've learned that parents that help their kids think critically and help them make decisions in the long run, they come out as better human beings. Right. But the main thing that I wanna say here is we have to be careful as parents that we don't shame one another because we're all on this earth doing the very best we can. And a lot of parents parent the way they do because of the way they were taught for their parents. And and eventually they may learn they have to break that cycle of that parenting style. Um, But until then, we just just have to dig in and do the best we can. And a lot of parents are doing research, they're studying, but there's some parents that don't have access to this information. um, but I, I think that's such a great point that we, we just have to sit back and realize they're doing the best we can and watch how we talk to other parents. Like, I know my mom would say to me, let him eat this, you know, or let him do that. And I'd be like gringing um, and it depends on how you communicate with your mom, grandmother, or whoever. I used to just laugh about it and say, mom, you know, as a doctor, this is what we do now. Or something, you know, I would just make up something so I wouldn't get frustrated. Find something that helps you relate. And you're able to say that to your parents because you're going to get pushback sometimes.
0: And it's hard. I mean, you're absolutely right that we can shame each other as parents, which is so awful, particularly outside school gates or, you know, there's a lot of judgmental looks, even if they're not Outwardly saying things, I think you can feel judgment, particularly when things are not going right, or your child is having one of those mood swings, you know, moments. Yeah. You know, maybe the grocery speaking.
1: store and your kid's screaming in the car. You know, everybody's looking at you like you're a terrible parent, but they have no idea what happened the thirty minutes before getting them into the car of the grocery store.
0: Exactly. There's all that you know context, having the full picture, understanding of the child has a neurodiversity. All all of those things that can play into a parent who's struggling anyway. But you're right. So I think being kind to ourselves and then kind to others, which is obviously, I think I'm hearing you say that, which is so important and a really good reminder. Sometimes I think over-researching things can be a bit of, an, and I don't know, you might disagree with me because as a doctor, research is everything. But sometimes I think we like gut instinct is something and a mother's instinct or a parent's instinct might actually overrule the research. What do you think that that's
1: so great? Because we are inundated with information right now with social media, right? We see all the mom blogs about how they handle their kids, and and we're and just like you said, sleep training, eating, intuitive eating. Um, we're supposed to do this interval eating. I mean, there's all this information out there as a parent, and it can be overwhelming. And I love that you talked about your gut instinct because I think as a mom, sometimes that's the best thing that we should go by because we kind of know that's what's really right. Um, and if you do have questions about what you're doing, find a reputable source. And social media is not always a reputable source, you know, and that's the scary thing. My kids will come home and say, TikTok said I should be using this for my skin. And I'm like, oh, it happens. And there's just almost we're inundated with information, but we have to look through it and see what feels comfortable for us as a parent and then to put our gut instinct into it. And just as I said before, just do the best we can.
0: And I think it's difficult with TikTok these days, right? Because there are so many medical professionals or others. How do you regulate that? My daughter said the same thing. There is a professor on there saying this is oh, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure I want this professor guiding you on anything. <laughs> I know. And, you know, once they follow somebody then their algorithm
1: is going to give them more people with the same opinion. So they're thinking that that opinion is the most popular because that's what they've done with their algorithm. And I think it's really important if your kids bring you something of an idea that they have about something that someone is saying, whether it be a physician or, or look it up, make sure it's factual with them. And then if it's not, block them. Otherwise, you're just going to continue... To get information from people just like
0: that person, it was quite scary. I was at a school talk not long ago, and one of the head teachers asked the question to a whole bunch of primary school age children, boys. In fact, I was a boys' school. How many of them had access to social media at that age? Because they're quite young, primary age, under eleven. He said a quarter of the kids put their hand up, and then he said, "Hands up if you know the name Andrew Tate," and he said eighty percent of the kids put their hand up, and. So even if we think we our kids are safe because they don't have access, they're still getting information from somewhere and they understand who this person was. And obviously that leads me to my, my next question around educating boys as much as empowering girls. So I love the fact that you've got girlology. I love the fact that you've written a book for everybody, but I think we still have to talk about the fact that we've got consent and we've got girls and we've got boys. And I think there's a role that each gender plays in an understanding that right and the wrong behaviors around consent. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. And and I think consent is such an important thing that we need to teach at our young
1: kids. And kids don't necessarily understand consent at an early age, but they will start to understand boundaries. Like, can I hold your hand? Um, Can I kiss you before you get on the bus? Or, Or even of like at a holiday party, you're forcing your kid to kiss Uncle Albert. No. You know, they should know if they want to kiss Uncle Albert, give him a high five or a fist bump or absolutely nothing. So I think That we start asking, like, what do you want on your pizza? I like mushrooms. What do you like? We think of consent as always being around sexual or things like that, but consent can start so much earlier with conversations about what you like and what you don't like, and then uh, learning appropriate boundaries around those. And that's why, again, talking about private parts and names for private parts and setting those boundaries makes a huge difference. And truly, it does help with conversations with kids later on in life if they understand everybody, then they're able to talk about what they do and don't want to do sexually with each other because they've had conversations with all different types of kids in the same room. And that's that's really important, I think.
0: Absolutely. Hear, here to that. I absolutely think that's a brilliant place for us to probably end the conversation as well, because I think it leads us beautifully on what we need to be doing with our children. It's being frank, upfront, honest, and, and raw sometimes, you know, saying, I'm sorry, I made a mistake or wasn't quite sure how to answer that. Kids will love that if you make a mistake. They'll like, they'll like set up a parade outside or something like, mom, I
1: made a mistake. And they love that. So being have, making mistakes and being vulnerable sometimes for our kids is so powerful. And we talk about it a lot, but we just don't do it. So I think that's really important for our parents to understand too.
0: So if there are any listeners with older children and think, oh man, I've messed this up. I think going back- and revisiting those conversations, but they would probably, our teens would probably really appreciate it actually. So I just wanted to say if you could share a little bit about gir- girl girlology. I can't say this correctly. Say. <laughs> and mom cliff which is a wonderful thing that you also put together as a resource for parents. I would love for you to share a little bit about it, and then I will for anyone listening to this on a walk or in driving in a car. Don't worry, all the information will be linked in the show notes. You can have access to it. But I would love for Dr. Trish just to explain a little bit about what both things are. Okay, so as a pediatrician, I totally recognize
1: that uh, puberty periods, even correct anatomical terms that we already talked about and other reproductive health issues are not easy topics for parents and kids to talk about. And that's why we really created Girlology initially was to supply medically accurate fact for our own patients um, and also to support parents to have these conversations, uh, to improve parent-child communication, to reduce the silence and misinformation and stigma around these topics. And so Girlology is a girls' digital health platform. We have grade by grade playlist for girls and their parents. Um, we have over 500 videos, in the moment tips, skincare classes, puberty, you name it, we've covered anything. So if there's anything somebody thinks we don't have covered, please let us know because we would like to do that. We do have gynecology as well. Um, But what we realized is that gyology isn't always as well attended. I think people think that uh, people that are born as females have more reproductive health issues down the road, so they need to have more conversations with them. But the guys need to hear it, just like you said. And, you know, in Girlology, we're all about just reducing the stigma and the healthcare costs related to, you know, just the differences that everything that happens with males and females. Uology is, as you said, is on Amazon and Girlology is... A website you can check us out, and then we you were a guest on the mom cliff. The mom cliff is all about real to real moms talking about day to day issues that we have, frustrations, um, successes, insights, and so we run those
0: live um, every other Thursday. So we would love to have um, you guys come join us. They're great. I have really enjoyed being well on the show, but also as a participant, I've really enjoyed the conversations. I do watch them. So they're fantastic. I do encourage mums. Sometimes you just need to laugh and it's nice to have other mums. Uh, and you do that brilliantly on there, Dr. Trish. I can't thank you for all the work that you're doing, the way you're empowering young people, the way you're helping us parents navigate this tricky time. We would be lost without people like you. So thank you for everything you're doing.
1: And you as well. Look what you're doing. Thank you. So
0: so sweet. I love the Mutual Admiration Club. We definitely, (laughs) um, I really appreciate it. It's been great connecting with you. Dr. Trish is in the United States, but all of her tips and things on her website and Instagram are really worth checking out whenever you get a moment. I would definitely highly recommend that. And I'm going to say, if you have any questions, maybe just put it on her comments. She's great at getting back to you. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks. I hope you've all enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate you listening in to the Elevate podcast. Give us a share, give us a like. We always appreciate your support. Bye for now. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestepino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.